don't look for easy ways or that you're going to be start winning races right away. You know, it takes time, it takes years, it takes sweat, it takes uh, years of uh, sacrifices. But if you if you put your head into it, if you put your heart into it, and you give 100%, you will achieve some things that you would never dream to be to be able to achieve. like hit me i'm like what are you serious so two weeks before doing world cup i had no idea i'll be i'll, I'll have a chance to start in the world cup they come to kenway and they're like who are you how did you like like who brought you here but because they didn't know i even moved <laughs> well, right they didn't know who i am <laughs> i'm kind of a big deal really people know me but they are who we thought they were. And like, how did you race? And I explained, well, because there was a spot and and a fist that I could race. And, and they're like, oh my god. Mama said, don't give up. It's a little complicated. It was pretty crazy. It was crazy. It was un un unexplainable. And like I said, I just blasted everything. It just kind of lined up. <laughs> Welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast. This is part two of our interview with Ivan Bobikov. We hope you enjoyed listening to part one. Part two is incredible to hear his story. So we hope you enjoy that. We're going to get right to it. No uh, intro show and discussion of other topics. We're just going to go right back to our interview. Part two, Ivan Bobikov. So you talk about kind of discovering, hey, I, my talent is skiing uphill, you know, that endurance kind of aerobic machine. And I come from a little bit more of a running background. So you can be consistent with data, right, and gauge your fitness pretty empirically. But I'm just curious for you, how did you know when you were in peak form? You know, was there a workout that showed you that? And, and I gave you the example, like, you know, if you're, a, if you're a miler and you do 10 by 400 and you can do 62 to 64 seconds, you're, you're probably in about 412 mile shape, you know. But for you skiing, how did you know <laughs> sort of where you were at? Were you someone who just kind of would go by feeling like, I know I'm in good shape? Was there some yeah. hill that you'd sprint up and time yourself? Or were there other metrics in the lab or the weight room that, that told you that? Yeah. No, like back then we didn't have much testing, especially in the factory team. Whenever somehow that was wasn't the, something we had any 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 testing or lab or whatever blood testing. But I think it's key. It goes more by feeling. Like you know, every it's really yeah. personal, and everyone has a very different kind of measures. Like I remember, like my like uh, the easiest one would be my teammate Devin Kershaw. Like I remember his test was he was just because he's also like. He, he was great. He was great, great runner. So he, he did track and field in school, and his test was he was just kind of doing high knees, just like a few like kind of bringing his knees up and feeling the legs. And he's like, oh, that feels light today, feel good. So for me, it was a bit like maybe doing intensity and just feeling how like yeah, options feel, how the body feels, like how technique feels. Sometimes you you like you know when you're not 
not in a great, great, I don't know, mindset or shape. Like you feel like all over the place and technique falling apart and you're stumbling and stuff like that. And sometimes it's just like everything is just kind of all like one, one machine, right? One, one piece. And you like, you, you feel like invincible <laughs> almost. That's what I, I would describe in some races. But I feel like I can go like this forever, right? And, and that was the probably, um, uh, the feeling that I was looking for before each race or before the weekend. So know that I'm in shape, yeah, and a good peak. Okay, would that kind of was that, or was there something else that kind of guided you to know if you should in, if you could increase and kind of take a risk and see if there was more fitness to be gained, or if you needed to sort of back off yeah. what you were doing? Is that kind of what you would go by? Yeah, pretty much. I'm I'm kind of the kind of person that I give my hundred percent every day, right? And and but but you're right. Like so, all of that those feelings and also race results, you know, they show me okay, well, like I won by this much. Let's see, if, like, and I it wasn't I wasn't struggling, for example, you know. So like it means like I'm um I I have some some I can I can increase my load and see where well that will take me, you know, or maybe it's too much. Or like next day I race and I'm like oh that was. Was, I still won, but it was really tough. Like, oh, maybe I need to try something else coming up to the races. You know, so those, those kind of trying, trying, like hit and miss or, you know, success and failure kind of just took me from to, to where, where I was. And so as at peak fitness, you know, as an athlete, the highest level you were at, I'm kind of curious what you would consider to be maybe the most – extreme amazing training aspect or stat or hardest workout that speaks to your work ethic and your ability and it's okay to brag here but like you know just looking back i can't believe i did that workout wow that was an amazing workout you know like i can't believe i did that well or or maybe longer like wow yeah this year i trained 1200 hours and it was just i can't believe looking back i could do that but it was a slow process you know like is there something like that that sticks out to you that you can kind of share with us where our listeners are a little bit nerdy that way so we don't mind like stats but i'm always interested you know what that was like well yeah in um I think uh, I I gave this kind of interview to Foster Steer like a few years back. They were asking me what my favorite workout was, and okay. and uh, uh, and I like I kind of shared. There was a ski bounding. I'm not sure if you if you were, if you familiar with that, but so it's like running with poles but bounding. So it's like a right. classic like classic skiing technique, but like up the hill. And and so in Russia, we it's it's one of the most important workouts for for endurance. You can you can do uh, as a skier and uh, like I remember I was doing it so it's like there's two different so different types of workout and skin bound. So sometimes you can just go up the big long hill for like non-stop for like whatever 45 30 45 up to an hour or you can do it on the course that it goes like kind of up and down so like yeah it's actual ski course like any ski course and you're just running on it and down the uphill and you run you bump the uphill again you know and like growing up like in Russia I was doing like we had workouts like that for two and a half hours for like like we were going for like 25k of 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 bounding you know wow. and like uh, it's that's really tough and i like i i can't believe I w- we were doing it and when i came here I, like i kind of dialed it down a bit because i'm like oh maybe that's why i was always tired <laughs> it's, it's insane <laughs> yeah. you know and but uh i think that's the one and i don't know i don't know what else um well if you ski up the up the 
help the Chinese in the, in the final stage of uh, of the tour this year. I mean, that's that's yeah. really demanding too. <laughs> yeah, I think I feel like TV probably doesn't do that hill justice. On that vein, do you have any training opinions on athletes across the globe? Do you do you feel as a coach like, and you have a lot of experience now, coach and athlete, multiple countries. You know, you've seen a lot. Uh, are do you think certain people or nations are training too little or too much, or do you kind of try to just stay out of that fray? And um, I guess my personal opinion would be like, well, it's kind of hard to make a judgment call because. Quite frankly, the only thing I would say is everyone's kind of really personal. Like they're tr- what is too much for someone is going to be too little for another person, and it's so individualized. But yeah. do you, are you a little more, you know, dogmatic about something and kind of have a, a strength of an opinion or or something on that matter? Like I mean, I think it's quite quite similar. Like if I, I take like let's say North America, Europe, and Russia in terms of key training, so the hours is quite similar. I think what what differentiate or what's the biggest difference is, is the approach and mentality to the training process. You know, well, that's what kind of was uh, a bit surprised me when I came here and like I that later on when I joined because I didn't really train with the factory team like in the summer, but with the national team or Canadian guys when like later on in the in my career when I joined like that's what kind of be struggling because we they they were looking at the at the workouts or training or the whole experience to having some fun you know like to chat about and and so for that 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 kind of took some time for me to understand like why they're doing it because in Russia it was like I remember with my coach maybe it's uh, it's too much or it's hard but that's how I grew up they were like okay if you if you're out here you gotta give me a hundred percent you know like I don't want you to like laugh or like you know like you focus on training you focus on technique and you have to you have to uh, uh, execute at the best of your ability, right? So, and you can do all other stuff, like you can joke around or you can tell anecdotes to like afterwards, you know, after training. I'm yeah. training, I, I don't want to see that. But, so maybe it was just my coach, but I, I've seen it many times. So, so maybe that's why, like some uh, some series that look at the Russian guys, they always kind of so, so serious, looking just like right. you know, and not really uh, laughing or you know, because they're so in the process. And and that's what I took from Russian systems. Like when I'm out training, like I'm I'm working constantly, working on something to improve myself. When I'm trying not to get uh, distracted with like uh, my friends or whatever. So so that's in my opinion the biggest difference but the hours and intensities and all that stuff everyone like they, it's, it's not a secret you know like you can see how Norwegians train how, how right. Russians train I think like Norwegians they just they bring more they did more um, creative in, with their training process and, and I think they, they also the most important part in Norway or Scandinavia they they spend a lot of time or pay a lot of attention like so athletes actually coach himself not so much as the coach you know so when athletes when well of course coach is, is having a big impact on the on the training process but it, he involves athletes in, into it you know when like in russia it's, it's a bit less but in russia it's like okay i'm telling you what to do and you do it you know you don't yeah. ask questions pretty much maybe now it's changing but that's when it's kind of what when i grew up you know and, and uh so i i i believe that athletes got to be involved in the training process to to like if you don't understand why you're doing it and and, and where you're doing it why you're doing it why exactly this you know it would be maybe uh, in some cases maybe lost of the kind of drive and like you know lost of the you know like um yeah. the and, intrinsic uh, motivation really motivation like, exactly yeah so do you um, do you intentionally bring some of those aspects, though, from your 
you know, Russian background and experience in that specific athletic culture to, to as a coach now where you're like, oh, yeah, I, I see a place where on a longer workout, cracking a joke here or there is fine. But then another day you're like, man, we need to kind of inject a little bit more seriousness into this specific workout or this group. Like how, how do you take that background that you've experienced and go, this was a positive from Russia and I'm going to use it. And this was a negative and I'm definitely yeah. not going to use it. Exactly. So that's another thing why I think like it's, I uh, was successful and like I got in, in, as, a, as a coach and as an athlete too, it's using those because it's such a big contrast, right? From the cultures, from the, from the sport culture and, and be, be able to see it and, and use both, both goods from both systems, you know, it's, that's what also, uh, I think it's really, uh, really great. Uh, but, and you're right, it's kind of, it's kind of balanced. Like, I don't see why it should be, um, sometimes it's a bit, a bit less stressful or sometimes it be, could be a bit, a bit more serious to the, to the, depending on the workout. And, and it also comes down to the, what kind of group you're coaching, right? What kind of, and knowing that at those athletes and knowing somebody, somebody like, you know, like, for me, for example, I always, I'll, like, coach always had to, like, pretty much stop me, like, because I will, over, I will overdo it. And some other athletes, and they, they, they need to be pushed. They need to be encouraged. They need to be uh, motivated, right? So to do, to do that, like, certain exercises or certain hours and stuff like that. So it's that balance. You have to know the person. You have to know the athlete, and, and you have to find. But you're right, like, if it's a long three-hour or five-hour run, let's say, it's, it's it, it would be only negative if they all like you know not talking and <laughs> just being in themselves. Yeah, like yeah. you know, it's going to be terrible. So, but, so there's there's a time and place and place for everything, right? For for both sides. So this has been really fun because I feel like, you know, your story, it's like you said earlier, it's kind of a fairy tale. You've got, you've had so many different experiences and I've uh, talked a little national team, you know, and factory stuff. And now I even kind of want to transition just a couple of questions on this kind of young crop of skiers in North America. They're on the rise. They're, they seem to be challenging or starting to challenge the European counterparts. And, and this is both Canada and the U.S. And so... Currently, what excites you the most coming up in the pipeline in Canada? And then also, what do you think for the the Canadians and the Americans? Like, we're talking about that men's relay team, too, you know, that won gold. And we had Ben Ogden on our show the other week and, and asked him a similar question. What does he need to do to have, or what do they need to do to continue this breakthrough and have sustained success on the World Cup level? Um, so yeah, what are you most excited about in, in Canada and the youth pipeline? What do these guys need to do to be successful on the world cup? Obviously you've had success there, so you, you'd be able to speak to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it just, because uh, it's always been like that. Like there's some, like it comes in, it comes and goes in a way, kind of, you know, sometimes, and we've seen it many times when it's, uh, in North America, you know, you have, you have Bill Koch, you have so many great skiers. Um, and same in Canada, Becky Scott, Sarah Renner, and then kind of like he dipped, and then we had men team on the, on the rise, and then again we had Chandra Crawford winning medals, you know, and, and US, you had Kikin, and after Kikin, I have Jesse Diggins, and 
and before you had Neural, you had uh, it, it, it's, it's always comes and goes. Just compared to Europe or Russia, like because they have way more numbers, bigger numbers of those talented athletes coming through. And here maybe we have, we're losing those to hockey or basketball or whatever, <laughs> right? But it's right. always been, and and this time it's, it's no different. So um, now we have couple young uh, skiers too in Canada, Xavier McKeever and uh, and Tom Stevens. So there were two of them were they both of them were on the on the, on the relay where they, they were second. You know, you guys won and, and we were second in the junior junior champion world championship. Right. And some some girls too so that's really exciting to see those and, and um uh, like yeah, I am really excited to see where they're gonna go and how they're gonna improve even more. And like yeah, seeing your guys' success, also young guys like Ben and and Gastro Maher, some, and that's that's the reason why we actually last year I brought the Alberta ski team. We, we went to uh, Park City in Utah, and we had joint camp uh, oh, cool. with the with the junior team there as well for the U23 team, and all those guys were there. So I think just uh, because we're so isolated from Europe, right? We don't have enough like that that the racing in the summer and that challenges in the summer. You know, we kind of owned by by ourselves. That's what we I think we're losing compared to Europe when they all when there's pretty much no borders, they all they go trade together, they race together, there's lots of races in Norway and Sweden and in Switzerland, like Russia too, like, you know, and, and they constantly race when for us it's kind of quiet here and I think that's like looking back at my career, I think that's what I missed too, being like on a national team, Canadian national team is just uh, not enough uh, those uh, getting together and just kind of challenging each other and, and trying to improve that way, you know, with, with the American guys. Yeah, that's really huge to have, you know, Canada and the U.S. really working together to um, have healthy competition really bring out the most. So I hope that does continue for both of those groups. Um, just yeah, a couple. Like, like oh. best example would be like for before Keegan uh, got to, yeah, got to like those those highs when she, she was winning World Cups and stuff. I remember she was young and she was like joining us and and Chandra Crawford and Becky and Sarah like in the World Cups and she was young and. Right. And that's what make her like such so successful. And the same, she brought up Jesse. She she brought up Sophie Coldwell, and 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 made that push for them. And kind of gave that baton, you know, like really baton kind of to them. Um, so it's really important. They, it's not going to be any different. We have to use our talents and and to bring up the younger guys. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's probably on ski podcast specifically. It gets the narrative is is probably inaccurate spun this way where, oh, on the male side, we're struggling, the female side's doing great, and now we've got this young group of guys, maybe they'll do better. And the reality is, is no, that's not true. Like those those guys that are veterans, they've laid the foundation kind of in a similar way of even like Keegan Randall laying the foundation for the success that we've seen Jesse and Sophie and um, – uh, all the Sadie Bjorns and all those people experiencing now, I mean, the, the, I would imagine the older athletes have a lot to do with it. And Keegan was fortunate to hang around long enough to be, you know, to kind of reap some of those benefits. But I do, do you think it's kind of sad that like, or, or do you think, this is just not true that some of those older athletes who end up retiring and now this young crop comes through, they might reap the benefits, get some more glory, but they had a role as well. Of course. I, 
I mean, that's that's sometimes the problem of uh, our federation, not federation, but our sport culture a bit here as well. Like when the athletes retire, and they sometimes they just like, okay, well, just disregard them, and you know, instead of trying to keep them in sport and trying to motivate and and pass that experience and uh, and uh, and knowledge to the younger younger people, but sometimes it happens naturally, like you said, with the with the kick and and because you need the training partners and and there was JC, there was the Sophie, there was the there was Bjornsson, you know, and 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 those are on the back of uh, kicking. They, they that's right. how they became great athletes, you know. So and but yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes and no. You can like praise those those. Uh, experienced athletes, or but it's also because those young athletes were working their butts off, right? But they yeah. because they saw where they need to be and what the what the level where the markers are, and that's how they got there. But it's kind of both ways, right? It's because younger guys sometimes pushing pushing a bit older guys and and uh, and getting something new out of them as well, right? So right. It, it works works both ways. Yeah, no, and I'm sure you'd have a lot to say in terms of the the drama and the inner workings and what goes on in ski federations in multiple countries, but we don't have to dive into that. Actually, to kind of wrap up a few things, I wanted to ask you uh, about your equipment or skis, because we do have listeners who like to know just like about equipment specifics. So when you were on the World Cup, how many skis did you get and or have? And you had a long career, so maybe that's kind of an impossible one to answer. But more so, do you have a specific pair that always seem to win out yeah. in speed tests? Is there some old faithful or a ski that you kept around for a long time that might be kind of fascinating that we would know about? Yeah, that was, uh, uh, it's kind of both, you know, so earlier when Solomon just came out with skis and uh, on the factory team, I remember Andy, uh, Andy just got a pair from the store or something, you know, and, and somehow they were really good. My sister, <laughs> I had like maybe one skate and one classic. Like, well, I had a bag, I had maybe... 10, 12 pairs, yeah. know, like so six, five or six of each. But I, t- I for the first year in Salmos, for the first at least maybe, I don't want to lie, but probably four or five years, I used most of the races, I used that one pair of each, you know, because they were so universal and like I couldn't, like nobody could understand why are they so good, you know. Yeah. And I raced like from the beginning of the first year in the factory team, I raced all the World Cups after that, I raced Olympic Games with that for Russia and I raced Olympic Games for Canada and them. But later on, of course, by the end, like because they, it, it started improving and I got more speed. So by the end of probably some of the, and like everything's changing, right? Technology changes and there's more demand for the skis and, and everyone. So maybe, um, because we also started having a had a box track as a Canadian team in Europe, and I probably had at least thirty pairs, maybe total. You know, I never some of them I never touched. So like Rockstar does a lot of work for us, and they they test some of those skis and eliminate some earlier. So maybe it was way more, but I would say maybe twenty and twenty in the last couple of years of my career I had. And but again, I got to uh, it's usually between two, three, four pairs maybe of each that, that kind of gets always thick at the end, you know, because of that. But, but it's important to keep refreshing and keep... But see, in the World Cup, it's easier because we get those keys for free to just keep bringing them up and right. giving us... Uh, trying, trying, and we, so, so it's always constant refreshment, you know, for the 
for the people who buy themselves, of course, it's impossible to, to have that many skis, you know, but sometimes if you're lucky enough, you find that kind of one pair that works magic for all kind of conditions, you know, but now it's kind of, well, now with that fluoro band, you know, there's no right. fluoro uh, waxes, so it's going to be more on skis, more on the grinds, and, and that's where it's going to be really important to have a great ski, the ski that, that works for you, like with the right camber, with the right stiffness that works for you, and, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's important. Part. And of course, like you mentioned also in one of the questions there, that it's kind of, it, you're right, it's, it is unfair when the club or whatever, the top guy, top dog, or Bolshino, for example, for us, you know, club or for Fisher, or those top dogs, they always get the first pick and they get more, more, um, uh, um, time, uh, from the, from the, from the company and, and more, product to test and all that stuff of course most likely they're going to get the better skis than everybody else by maybe marginal you know they, they, right. because it's kind of all similar but but that's how it works that's how the sport works because if they're if that's a winning dog and they that's how they brand and that's how they showcase their product like of course they're going to pay more attention to those people right, right? so it's, but it is not fair so it is really hard for the younger guys who are coming up from the local circuit going to the World Cup and they bring their own skis and they not even like I, I experienced that I've seen a couple few few guys who came to the national team and they just or just made the World Cup and came up and, and there's their equipment is not up to par with the with the what what the World Cup guys using, right? So and that's why you yeah, trying to trying to find other ways or get more skis and try more skis. But it takes years. It takes years to uh to uh, go through that process and find something that you you'd be successful at the, on the World Cup. I'm really glad you touched on that question. I wasn't sure if I if I should bring it up, and I think it is a it's a huge. It, it bothers me. Like I I totally understand the reality of it, um, and and it makes perfect sense. And quite frankly, I don't think there's much you can really do about it. Other than I do think it's important to bring up to coaches because they should be responsible to some extent to looking specifically for true talent and not just going who's winning yeah. those races because they're definitely no, no, are. But see, the co coaches, coaches are not in charge of that, right? So it's Waxtex who get the products, who get the more skis. And and uh, separate, but many times what happened is like like for example Alex and Devon they raced on Fisher and for, well for Alex switched to Solomon later on but they raced on Fisher for many many years and and as I remember they always shared like a kind of we call it one ski bag right where they they shared the product so because Alex was a bit heavier Devon was a bit shorter so the skis were different but they always and Alex liked skis uh, that uh, he didn't like too much kick you know he, he always prefers speed when Devon like for the classics for example Devon like a bit more grip or like a bit more stickier ski so that's so and that worked for them so the through the many years they always they test together and they like oh I'm, I'm like I like this one oh, oh but I like and I like I like those ones too and sometimes there is this little bit of conflict but most of the time it worked out perfectly so and when the the of course, they're trying coaches and watchdogs trying to help out those guys who just young guys who are coming out. And for example, when when the top dog like Alex, for example, tests his skis and and he picks the skis, so sometimes second or third pair would go to that young athlete who who doesn't have like 
great right. equipment, you know, or, or or compatible equipment, right? So so there there is some help, but at the end of the day, like I'm talking for, like of course, of course, like service for the fisher or salmon will will give more attention to a certain person. Right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I think it is, my, it is what it is. I think my point, not not even on the World Cup level, I'm talking even more like when we're talking about 10, 11, uh-huh. 12, 13 year olds, like of a co- and, and this isn't a coach like bearing down on some young kid going you're going to be the new skier i think it's more like if if someone comes to the sport at let's say 14 or 15 and a coach is like i think this person could be really talented but they're really deprived on an equipment standpoint like that's kind of where i think they need to do their very best to like give that person the opportunity to to really so we can see what their true potential is because i think the sad part is too often sometimes a great skier, like like great skiers, fall through the cracks just because of that. But I mean, yeah, obviously yeah. At, at the at the top national team levels, no, I'm not I'm not even specifically talking about that. Although I I've heard from some elite national athletes where they're like frustrated by the fact that you know they might be the fifth best guy on the team, and there's just no prayer for them to move up because everyone above them has such faster skis. But yeah, that's kind of a different issue. I just mean more like I, I think it I think for us at the local programs, you know, just realizing that. There might be a really talented skier with all the right tools, except for that equipment aspect, and we need to try to uh, try our best to like bring them through in some ways. And uh, I don't yeah. know, maybe, maybe that's maybe don't, it's don't yeah. Let me, yeah. Don't don't even let me start on this. First of all, for 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, you don't need World Cup level equipment. You know? Right, that's, right. That's, like you gotta you gotta learn how to ski on the entry yep. equipment first. <laughs> and then talk about like the top level like skis that cost eight hundred dollars and boots that cost fifteen hundred dollars. You know, like like for for fourteen year old, it doesn't. You're not going to make much difference, right? So and great athletes, great skiers, they will find their way to the top. You know, and and yeah. if, and uh, you know how many times I heard that that each athlete would say, "Oh, I'm the best here and I'm the best there." Like why? Like you know, like let's resolve talk for 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 you. You know, not just sure. your mouth and just saying like your opinion. Yeah, your opinion, right? So. And uh, but I remember I'll tell you like that as a parent now like I have a son and he went through the ski program too and I remember he was I think he was probably nine or ten years old and here in Camber they had a race and uh, I just gave him skis whatever like we, we, I had Solomon Solomon gave me some some skis and whatever I didn't even like I'm not even thinking about waxing them for the race right but then yeah. he came back and he's I remember, I remember he's asking me because I was in the World Cup and I'm talking to him like, so how it was like, well, that, uh, yeah, it was okay, but uh, can I get, can you get me race skis? And I'm like, and he's like 11, probably or 10, I don't remember exactly. And I'm like, what do you mean race skis? I'm like, well, like all the kids racing on race skis and I don't have race skis. I'm like, yeah, you have a perfectly fine skis. Like, what are you talking about? Like, no, those skis with the hole in it. You know, so he saw the, the kids have like top end fishers with the whole like that's where the first year like, yeah, yeah. came out with that marketing move with the whole in it, right. and, and like that really frustrates me. I'm like, you don't need so like you 11, 12 year old like just first learn how to ski, enjoy it. Don't don't yeah. think about results or having the fastest skis on the field. You know, and 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 that's that's can hurt somebody you know like uh, like now kids spoil now you look at the equipment they right. have boots and stuff if you look at what i was skiing back in russia <laughs> with kind of boots and skis we had like i for from probably not eight nine year old to like 12 12 year old i skied on the skis that was chopped at the at the, at the like kind of in the half because we didn't have small skis we had only huge skis and my wow. coach just 
saw it, like, just uh, cut him, cut him in the middle, kind of, and that's when we see them because there's no shorter key. And it was fine. Like, there was enough. <laughs> but, yeah, that's, that's a different issue. Okay, what's, uh, what's yeah, next? Yeah, that, no, I, well, I'm really happy and encouraged to hear that someone of your caliber, who's also a coach and a dad, is like, has that perspective because I think you're totally spot on. You're totally healthy. But unfortunately, I think like other sports before us where, I mean, I played basketball in high school too and, and hockey is big in Minnesota. And quite, quite frankly, if you are in Minnesota, it's not like play pond hockey for fun until you're in high school. It's like you're enrolled in a program when you're four years old and you're giving yeah. up weekends. And, and yeah. so I, I think like it's really refreshing to hear that you have the right perspective. But, uh, but I think it is it will be a conflict of things of sorts when there are other you know parents who are like, oh, no, I'm going to get my kid the best skis when they're five. And then they're going to get a little bit of a head start. Oh. And so I hope you're right about like oh. there's hope for everyone. And yeah, there, it'd be an interesting topic to talk more about. But I guess I, I want to end our interview with um, a question that I like to ask all of our guests about like what is your ultimate purpose for what you do and you've been a coach and an athlete you've been involved in sports you have an amazing journey I'd kind of like you almost more to spin that question this way and that is what would be like your ultimate message that you hope young people get from sports you know like what is the ultimate thing you feel like you've really learned from your journey that you hope other people can have or that you can impart to them that's a big question. I like to me, like to me, sport sport opened lots of different doors. You know, Be, uh, because of the sport, I got to travel the world. I got to go to Olympic games. I got to meet some great people. I I I, I went to university. I got education. I'm, <clears throat> I'm working now as a coach. Like you know, there's there's a lot of things. But on the personal level, like it it gives you confidence. It gives you healthy lifestyle. It gives you sport for life, you know. So it's it's hard to put a price tag on that. Like it's it's, it's priceless, you know. If you, I'm I'm just blessed to to have had to 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 be able to be an athlete as my job, you know. Like not many people get to experience that, and and uh, of course it's 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 tough. Like I said, everything has to align, and you have to. But first of all, it's a lot of work, you know. Like that's when I when I meet with the or having a speech to the some clubs or or speeches, especially in our sport. Like and that will be important for parents too. Don't don't look for easy ways or that you're gonna be start winning races right away. You know, it takes time. It takes years. It takes sweat. It takes uh, years of uh, sacrifices. But if you if you put your head into it, if you put your heart into it, and you give hundred percent, you will achieve some things that you would never dream to be to be able to achieve. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, my my belief about sports too is it's those values that transcend the sport itself, right? Like that's what we hope, I think, as coaches that we we saw that we took from sports, you know, like we learned how to how to define success and how to chase it. And all the tools that um, that are necessary for that, we really honed through sports and how we can apply them to our jobs and our relationships and our marriage and being a dad and being a coach and all those things. It's like, I think that's really the message, you know, that I would say uh, that, that me personally, you know, it's like, yeah, that's the value in sports. It kind of sounds like, you know, you, you, you would agree with that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess uh, if you said we're going to finish it off, so we're not going to talk about World Cups or Olympic Games. 
anymore. Yeah, well, okay, so <laughs> that's, yeah, I, I wanted to kind of ask, yeah, that was, I passed over that. Of course, we decided to actually go into it. So we talked about the World Cup, the Olympics, and Ivan Bobikov's incredible journey in both. Please enjoy the rest of our interview with Ivan Bobikov on the Cedar Skier Podcast. And, like, you know, again, luckily, that year, in 2005, in December 2005, World Cup was coming to, Cam- to Canada for, for two, two weekends, right? And I remember, so World, World Cup was, like, mid-December, and or, like, first weekend of December, maybe, in the, in the mid-December. And I remember in no, no, November, when I won another Super Tour, one of the U.S. officials from the U.S. Ski Federation, USSA, he's like, so are you excited about the World Cup? I'm like, oh yeah, it's pretty cool. It's gonna be in Canmore. I get to watch all the best skiers, and and then he's just like, what do you what do you mean watch? Like, aren't you gonna race? Aren't, uh, and I'm like, but because I had I had this question asked a million times. I'm like, so so why like you winning here? Why don't you go in the World Cup, right? And I'm like, well, okay, here go again. Well, I'm I still hold Russian fifth license because I don't have Canadian passport. Because I don't have Canadian passport, I can't get Canadian license, and I can't go to the World Cup to race for Canada. You know, and then he's like, yeah, yeah, I know that. But because you continue on cup leader, yet you don't actually start. You don't spot. And that, like, hit me. I'm like, what? Are you serious? So two weeks before doing World Cup, I had no idea I'll, be, I'll, I'll have a chance to start in the World Cup. So, wow. and I'm like, oh, my God, so I have to start training. That was my first, first response <laughs> was I have to start training. <laughs> because before that, it was just a joke, right? But, yeah. but anyways, it was a few week, two, two weekends before the World Cup. And that's how I got my first start. I got, there was a silver star in British Columbia. And uh, on the, my first World Cup, it was a skiathlon. And uh, so I was 14th. I placed 14th. I was second Russian and I was best Canadian. And, and maybe best um, North American. I don't know. I don't remember it. But that was my first. And after that success, I'm like, oh, my God, this is crazy. I'm racing with the best in the world. And and and, and then weekend after that, the race was here in Canmore, which my favorite course. And it was a 15K skate. And I, and I got fifth. I was only like three seconds away from the third place or something, from the podium, you know? So that was another shock. And, and I was using Solomon's keys because we just switched in, in just a month before that, right? Yeah. And then Solomon was here at the World Cup, and he was, they were freaking out. Like, okay, we already have someone skiing the World Cup with our product. Wow. <laughs> you know? So there was lots of things and like lots of things to, hit, to wrap the head around. But so because of that, because I got spot, because I raced well and I got points, so the Russian system, that's how they qualify, you can get to qualify to Olympic Games or to Olympic team, is to, to get points on the World Cup. And because of those two World Cups, I got quite a few points. And, and after, like, when I, on the first, after, even after, after I finished the first World Cup, Russians were just still didn't know that I raced. But even right. though with the Russian flag under my name, right? And then they come to Kenmore and they're like, who are you? How did you, like, like who brought you here? But because they didn't know I even moved. <laughs> or right. Because they didn't know who I am. <laughs> and, like, how did you race? And I explained, well, because there was a spot and, and a fist that I could race. And, and they're like, oh, my God. So, like, so what did you race? And I raced, I remember what I raced in. I raced with a uh, XC.com uh, racing suit with a factory team hat. And uh, and with the Russian flag under my name. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so it was it was pretty crazy. It was crazy. It was un- un- unexplainable. And like I said, I just blessed that everything just kind of lined up that way. And so because of those two World Cups, the Russians were just like, "Well, you just uh, you just got some points. Like you might as well 
or at least some of those that were friendly to me. They're like, you might as well go to Russia and try to qualify for the Olympic Games because you got some points and you have a good shot at it. And see, like from season being just just super tours and stuff, it accidentally like just immediately went to like World Cup, and after that, oh my God, I have a shot at the Olympic Games to making Olympic Games because I was chasing my shit. I tried to. Uh, get like kind of expedite weight to get my passport and race for Canada at those Olympics because by that time I already knew that Olympics coming to Vancouver and I'm like oh, yeah. I have to I, I need some experience before that so so that was the the main reason um, that I I kind of went and try and I actually uh, that's another story for many hours maybe because hey could you say national. hold on a second um, huh? I, I, Ivan could you say again how you i had my i was saving my thing so i missed the beginning where you said how you got into oh. the the world cup with without having any nation obviously that you like you weren't with the russian team you raced under yeah. a flag but could you explain that again how you didn't know about that the ability for you to be in that and how that worked yeah again so so because i was chasing those super tours and racing all the of the races, I actually was a Continental Cup leader, and and that year, that was the first year when FIS came up with this rule that Continental Cup leaders they get their own World Cup spot okay. at, at, a, okay. at a certain a certain period. Like it was a period one, period two, and period three and period four through the whole season. And and because I was Continental Cup leader, I got I got my own start, but I had no idea about this rule because I was just racing super tours. And one of the U.S. officials from the USSA, he's just like, so are you excited to, to uh, about the World Cup in, in, in Canada that's coming up? And I'm like, yeah, it'd be great to, to watch. And, and they like, Okay, okay. Yeah, I got, I, got, I got that. I got up to there. I, I started it there, so I just wanted to get the, the previous part. But so, And that was <laughs> – that's crazy because, I mean, that would have been – 2006, you competed for Russia. When was that – what was the year that first World Cup? So that was 2005, December of 2000. So there was three months before the Olympic Games. Wow. Wow. So you really had and no... Had, oh, and, my gosh. Wow. And and that was, like, in my career, that period was insane for me. I've never peaked in my life for such a long period of time because, like I said, I won all the Super Tours in the beginning. Then the World Cup, of course, like, it was insane when I was 14th and 5th. After that, I went to Russia. So, oh, no, after that, I went to... It was in Park City, uh, in Soldier Hall, it was U.S. National, so I, because I had to race for factory team at the National. And I told Andy, actually, he probably remembers it. I told him, hey, Andy, uh, I'm going to go back to Russia and try to, try to qualify, and I have races coming up, and so I'm not going to be peaking, uh, as per se, for the National, so I might not be the greatest shape. And, and I hope you understand. He's like, yeah, that's fine. So I won every single race at U.S. National at that time, so the day after 30K that I won, I jumped on the plane, I flew to Russia, I, they lost my ski bag, so I had to spend, a, a stack, uh, I was stuck in Moscow for another day. Uh, at, I think at 2, 10 p.m. I got my ski bag, I finally, I jump on the train, I, I get on the train to Ribbinsk, where the, like the, where there were another trials were, and I, I arrived like at 6 in the morning. At 8 a.m. I had start for 50 kilometers skate race, and I placed fourth there, so got oh. another bunch of points to, to be able to make the team. And there was, after that, there was more selection races, but long story short, and that, so starting season, it was only, for me, it was just racing in the U.S., you know, and yep. it, 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 within two months, it escalated from uh, being able to start the World Cup, like yep. getting some crazy results at the World Cup and making, 
uh, Russian Olympic team and going to Olympic Games, which was my, like I said at the beginning, that was my dream, right? Growing up, like looking up to those guys and, and such a prestige and it's so hard to do, right? That is like, literally... Short, of course, there's, uh, oh, that... I, I was already lo- looked at as, a, like, like some coaches looking at me as a Canadian, they're like some politics and they're like, Oh, what are you doing here, Canadian? Go back to your Canada. You're not Russian anymore. And, and there was stuff like that. It was not pleasant. And it was lots of kind of, they tried to make my my, my life really hard. But that's uh, maybe a different story. That I maybe I write a book sometimes. But no, that, that, that period was of my life was insane. You definitely should be writing a book. I was going to say that is the most insane escalation <laughs> I've ever heard. I, 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 I sometimes tell like, about the Jim Ryan story, the runner from Kansas, you know, first four minute, sub four minute high schooler. And you know how he went from in like a 20 month span from he joined the cross country team as a junior in high school to 1968 standing on the the line of the Mexico or the Tokyo Olympics, 1964. It's like, you know, that kind of progression where it's just like, how on earth did that happen? Other than, you know, you know, it's gotta go like, there's gotta be some divine reason. Right. But, uh, and I was going to ask you, yeah, like, you know, you go from at the World Cup, the Russian team doesn't even know who you are, to discovering who you are, to like you're nabbing some guy's spot for that team. I would imagine that would have been kind of exactly. kind of hard, yeah. you know. And yeah. yeah, I mean, did you did you have teammates there that were just kind of really disappointed or like angry at you, or or <laughs> maybe you can't really expound upon that shortly, but if you can. Uh, teammates probably not. You know, all of the athletes who are athletes, of course, they're looking at me kind of, you know. And just kind of, oh my God! But I was so good, and like I said, I was I was so fast at that time, and I was racing, you know. So I earned my spot. But that that more came from the coaches and personnel when they're looking it's like, oh, you took you're taking our guy's spot, and like, and we know you're gonna go back to Canada. So so at the Olympics, it, it, it came down to kind of they splitting up medals. They're thinking like in terms of when they putting me in the or not putting me on the relay or or not putting me on some races. It was more of like, oh, we're not gonna give medal to Canadian, like you know, like or this guy we we gotta take care of our guys, you know. So this it's really political, and it's for some people it's hard to understand. And even for me, like I for, like living in North America, I, I forgot what is it like, you know. And when I get back, it was a insane stress, like it was insane stress. And I and after two weeks being with the team, like. Like my literally, I had like I twitch almost, and my hands would just like shaking because I was on the on the ropes of like mental exhaustion because it was it was so so stressful and so bad and like you know and, but but I can't say that about the athletes. Our athletes were like were, were fine to me and and I had some some of the teammates from that I skied when I was in Russia, like from my republic, from my from my uh, uh, province, you know, and and they're of course good to me. I'm still good friends with with most of them, you know, but it's. Uh, yeah. That's it's so hard cool. To, it's hard to explain all of it. Oh, that is that's amazing. Well, I okay, this will be the actual final question because this little bonus section yeah. is totally worth it. But the, uh let's just say, uh, after all the races you've been through, World Cups, Olympics, the Owl Creek Chase, which we, you and I can connect on a, on a very emotional level. Um, what would you say is the greatest like ski race moment? You know, like where you finished a race and you were just either so happy because of what you accomplished, what you did, or where you were. Just like, what is your favorite ultimate uh, moment from your ski racing career as a whole? Um. I'm not sure I can put one. I can name you two. That kind of okay. on the par, I would say. So the first experience that that my second World Cup here in Kenmore, where I where I was uh, fifth, 
um, uh, or fourth, was it fourth? Anyway, so, so that was the shock to me because when okay. I finished the race and I knew I did okay, but I like, and I remember I was just hanging out or putting my clothes on after the finish line. And then one of the fifth people come in and, and says like, you just, just stick around here because you, you most likely going to be in the war. At the awards, and I'm like, that just like struck. Like I was, I, I was speechless. I'm like, yeah. What do you mean? He's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, you're gonna be top six, and they were awarding top six back then. And then I'm like looking how it's all, how it's all, and like, like I, I actually recently saw the photo from that race when I'm standing on the finish line, like all dressed up because it's quite cold, and like you can see my face, like I'm, I'm like shocked. I'm like. Oh my God! I can't believe this is happening because they kept saying, "Oh, you, you're, you're six. Yeah, you for sure going to be on awards. You're six now." And I'm like, "Oh my God!" And they say, "Oh, you're fifth. Oh, you're actually fourth because you actually that guy is slow down a lot." And I'm like, "Oh my God! I might be in the podium." So that, that moment was was kind of crazy for me, <laughs> you know. And wow. that was the beginning of my career. And then after that was of course winning the the World Cup at the altitude, the the final stage. Also, it was came out from nowhere. First of all, I was sick. <laughs> I, was, I, I was just doing it just to finish the, the Tour de Ski because back then, if you if you didn't finish Tour de Ski, you're going to lose all your points. All, like It's like you didn't right. start, right? So so I had to, like even through the sickness, I had to race. But then it was the first time for me racing up the hill, and I had no idea what to expect, so I just <laughs> went all out. And like I said, like, all my oh life, my I just did my 100%. Yeah. And, and then again, same thing. I'm standing on the top there, dressing up, and then the person say, oh, congratulations, you today's winner. And, like, again, I'm like, what? Are you joking? And, and you know, like, that kind of, because I maybe I never believed in myself that much, like other people, but, like, that came to me as an insane surprise. Wow. You know, and, of course, after that was the Olympic Games in Vancouver, um, when I was, when I, like, racing, and I'm, I'm realizing I have a shot at the medal when I finished fifth, but it, it was a kind of double double edge kind of because I was right. so happy that I finished fifth but at the same time I was so upset I was crying at the finish line because it was so close to the medal and, right. and I didn't get that you know it was only three point something seconds so so there is quite a few moments like that but I think those weren't like quite quite special to me and if we're not talking about co- competition like I think just the again that but I was so lucky that I competed in, and like you can say in two home Olympic games because one was in Vancouver in Canada and right. after that was in Sochi in Russia so both of them I, I consider my home home Olympic games right and not many people I think can, can say that <laughs> no that is that is actually insane to think about and I'm wishing they stop trying to turn me off I want it all We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Cedar Skier Podcast. If you liked this content, go to cedarskier.com. You can check out some of our old episodes. We've been interviewing stars on the U.S. ski team, high school athletes, college athletes, coaches, um, a lot of the big leaders in the industry. So check out some of those old episodes. You can read our articles and uh, enjoy that. Also, you can follow us on Anchor. That's where our podcasts are posted as well. If you have a good idea for discussion or you want to be on the show, you can reach out to me on Facebook or reach out to us on cedarskier.com as well. We'll see you on another Thursday morning edition. Remember, this week we have a live show, the opening day at Breckenridge Nordic. We're going to be there broadcasting from the Skeeter Skier factory team van. So um, join us for that show as well. 
All right, well, that's enough for today. So hopefully you're getting out in the snow, getting in shape, getting ready to go for cross-country skiing. This is the Cedar Skier saying so long, farewell, adios.